Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Chris Wolfe, and joining me this week, our roundtable of radio regulars, higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, our Beacon Hill representative, Jeff Roy, the chair of Franklin's Democratic Committee, Rachel Plukas, our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Remesong. This month, we celebrated the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., born 15th of January, 1929. King lived just 39 years before his assassination on April 4th, 1968. But in that short span of years, he transformed America and challenged a brutal status quo, a status quo that had made millions of Americans, Blacks, as second-class citizens. His campaign for change was forceful, but peaceful. His commitment to peace, love, and forgiveness remains an inspiration to all of us who are seeking, perhaps, a more perfect union. My favorite MLK quotation is this, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So some of our younger listeners might need reminding how brutal that status quo was uh, 60 plus years ago. And I have to invite you, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, perhaps you would like to remind us what was life like for African-Americans before the civil rights movement in America? Thank you very much, Chris. I am just absolutely amazed that my generation may be the transition generation. I was born in 1949, and I grew up uh, the first 10, 12, 15 years of my life surrounded by Jim Crow. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Because many of my children have no concept of what that means. My grandchild has no concept of what that means. Uh, But I distinctly remember uh, as a young child making sure that I could distinguish which fountain I could drink out of if I wanted to go get a water, uh, some water out of a bubbler. I could distinguish in terms of which door I could go in in certain restaurants or locations, if I was allowed in the restaurant at all. I remember Kresge's, uh, which ultimately became Kmart. As a matter of fact, part of what happened to Kresge's and why they became Kmart is because they had such a sordid history of discrimination uh, with respect to not only their store, their lunch counters in particular. And I remember very distinctly the first time that I, with my grandfather, was driving to the Deep South. I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. And we were on our way to Montgomery, Alabama, driving from Louisville, Kentucky. And when we got to Nashville is when my grandfather gave me the rules. And I'll give you a couple of them now. He told me, don't get out of the car unless you ask me or uh, come with me. Second, don't go into the restroom unless I accompany you. Third, when you're walking down the street, when we get to Montgomery, don't look at any white person in the eye. Look down. Four, make sure that you don't walk in the pathway of a white person. That is, you go to the curb, and if you have to, walk in the street a little bit to get around them. And then next, make sure that you don't speak, especially to any white women, and say anything. And always say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. Those were just a few of the rules he gave me as we were driving to Montgomery. What year was this? This was in 1959, as we're driving down the road. That's the way the world was. And Dr. King, and not just with his words, but with his action, helped to bolster and to, uh, I guess, inspire many of us, especially young people, 
to not only be active, but to be proactive when it came to things like destroying those kinds of images. It's it's tragic. I mean, I literally, as you're talking, started to feel nauseous. It's just how awful life was for a country which, you know, allegedly espoused the doctrine that all men are created equal or people are created equal. But thanks so much for sharing that. Mike, really, uh, really appreciate it. And I think a lot of people, even today, still oblivious to just how um, awful it was. I mean, the implicit threat there is of of violence, right? That if you break oh, the yes. rules. You break you'll... the rules, you could end up, uh, and this is one of the tragic things. Uh, you know, I would encourage people, I know it's a really rough movie, but I would encourage people to watch uh, Till. But I would also encourage you to watch Remember the Titans which brings uh, the whole idea of integration actually into the 70s is mm-hmm. what we're talking about with Remember the Titans. And don't forget, too, that in the 1940s, 1930s and 40s, Adolf Hitler admitted that his treatment of the Jews and many of the rules that he created were modeled after the Jim Crow laws of the South. And that's where he got his inspiration to not only discriminate, segregate, but to incinerate the Jewish people in Germany. So our history is, I think it's important. I think those who are trying to suppress it are demagogues. I think those who are trying to deny it are missing the point that if we don't want to change this country, then ignore our history. But if we do want to change, we better embrace our history. Yeah, truth is so much more powerful than than the myths uh, that some people like to believe. But you bring up a really interesting point that despite all that hate and the the violence and the the constant threat of violence that such a large part of the country's population faced, he didn't meet it with violence and hate. He met it with love and with forgiveness and in an intensity that yes, this has to change, but not to meet the the violence with violence. And you know, am I right? I mean, like, how did you feel like he he pursued his his campaign? Maybe we can open it up as well to Rachel. I think you had something to say to add to that. Well, I love that question, Chris. I was I was just thinking also about Michael, what you experienced as a young person. Um, going into an environment where you needed that kind of um, prep from an adult. And I was I was wondering if in your experience as an adult with children, if if you had times where you found yourself doing the same, because I, I, I know that some of this stuff really hasn't changed all that much. It's not the 50s or 60s anymore, but I know that these conversations still happen. Good question in these times. Oh, absolutely. And yes, my son, my grandson, I still have the talk with them about confronting police Uh, on this program. As a matter of fact, I think when we were talking about guns and gun violence, uh, I mentioned to our audience that uh, I had a gun pointed at me uh, at the tender age of 13 by a policeman. And yes, these things are still in the mindset and also in the pathos of those of us who are of color. And it's important for us to realize that albeit we are many years away from the 50s, the 60s, the 40s, even going back to the 1800s, many of the institutions in this country are still the same, are still built to suppress. Um, But I think Dr. King hit it uh, uh, right on the, uh, hit the nail right on the head Uh, especially the day before he died when he was in Memphis to advocate for economic justice for the sanitation workers of Memphis. And one of the things that he brought to, I hope, the, uh, the nation's attention is the fact that the inequality of opportunity extends into the inequality of the haves and the have nots. Mm -hmm. And that's important for us to realize And I just saw a statistic two days ago that the percentage of distance, the wealth gap in this country is exactly the same. Actually, it's a little bit worse than it was in uh, 1967, 69. Mm -hmm. In other words, 
uh, right now, the average wealth of Black Americans is about $13,000 on average. And for white America, it's about $165,000. That gap, and actually in Massachusetts, it's even worse. And Jeff, I think you have that. Uh, I think you know that number. Uh, but we've got a lot, a lot of work to do, folks. You know, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly, but am somewhat thankful that we have come a long way so that the story that you shared, Michael, from you growing up, thank God we don't have that as much. And it reminds me of MLK's famous quote that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've been fighting uh, these issues for generations. And uh, unfortunately, it does take time. And uh, and I was also reminded when you were talking about Hitler and the Jews, I was reminded, and I think we did a show on this when we talked about the Supreme Court some time ago uh, in that awful case of Buck versus Bell, where we uh, took, um, at the time, people described as feeble-minded or imbeciles and uh, they had the choice of being sterilized or living in some sort of a penal conal, conal, colony until they had uh, grown beyond child-rearing uh, ages. Um, and that also served as a model for uh, what what Hitler was proposing to do. Um, and, and it just, it amazes me that uh, intelligent people uh, wrote a Supreme Court decision back then that uh, endorsed this particular practice of uh, of discrimination. And, uh, um, you know, it, it takes a long time to overcome uh, this. I, I, I see it in my own life, uh, you know, talking to folks and, and being somewhat blind to uh, what is happening around me. And I, I'm grateful that, you know, I have friends like Dr. Michael Walker-Jones to set me straight in those <laughs> particular moments. And, um, you know, I, I actually had a friend who reached out to me and uh, had, you know, have known him for 20, 30 years. And uh, he was looking at my Facebook page and he said, I don't see many people that look like me on your Facebook page. Is it something about your community? You know, and, you know, I, it set me back. And, uh, you know, I'm very conscious of that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's going to take some time. But the arc of the moral universe does bend toward justice. And I'm delighted that, uh, you know, we're seeing things uh, turn around and I'm, uh, I'm always the glasses half full guy and it's, uh, and it's, it's getting better. And uh, the final thought I'll share is, uh, you know, I remember when I went to see uh, President Carter do the Sunday school back in January of 2019. Uh, so that's four years ago uh, today. We saw him, and uh, when I was sitting uh, in that church, it was the day before Martin Luther King Jr. Day uh, back in 2019, and uh, watching uh, Cory Booker and John Lewis walk into that chapel for the very same reason that I was there was so inspiring. Uh, but the very next day, uh, we actually drove back uh, from Plains, Georgia, up to Atlanta, Georgia, where we wanted to spend the day at the MLK Center in Atlanta. And the thought we had, uh, I don't know how many of you recall, but the government was shut down uh, at that particular time. And our thought was, and, and the MLK Center is a national park. And I said, I don't know what we're going to face when we get to Atlanta, but you cannot shut down the MLK Center on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And it was pleasantly surprised and delighted that Delta Airlines had funded the opening of the MLK Center for two weeks uh, during that time period when the government was shut down. Um, I didn't know what we were going to face otherwise, but it was a beautiful and one of the most me meaningful experiences to to be there at the center, to uh, go into the Ebenezer Baptist Church. Uh, to see the uh, the whole facility and the and the beautiful words of Martin Luther King Jr. spread throughout this whole area, uh, just very uplifting. And uh, I'm hopeful uh, that we will get uh, to justice 
hopefully in my lifetime. I want to just bring up something here uh, that uh, Dr. Michael Walker Jones kind of sparked. We are, uh, Dr. Mike and I are rough contemporaries. I spent my youth. Rough, I'll agree with. <laughs> Not just around the edges either. Um, Di- diamonds in the rough. Diamonds, you diamonds. Bet. You bet. But I spent a good deal of my youth in the deep south, Florida, which is you know commonly referred to as the Jersey of the South, but it was still Florida in the late 50s and early 60s. I remember segregated bathrooms. I remember water bubblers marked colored and white. And generally what the colored bubbler was, was what used to be called city water, which was, for whatever reason, it was rife with sulfur. <laughs> and that's what you smelled every Absolutely. time. And, and uh, that smell still comes back to me. And when that smell comes back to me, the other overriding feeling that I have is fear. Because when you live in a society where you may be on the oppressing end, but if you live in a society that fought, that keeps someone, some segment of that society down or keeps anything down through the use of force, fear infests both you and the oppressed. I'm not saying that I suffered the type of fear that Dr. Michael Walker Jones suffered, but I can remember when we used to, every summer, we would go camping and one year we were going to Montgomery, Alabama also. And this was at a time when there had been race riots, what they used to call race riots in Montgomery. And I can remember lying on the floor of the car once we crossed the state line into Alabama because I was fearful we were going to be attacked. So and again, I'm not equating my fear with uh, every day of your life living with that fear. But I'm saying that this was something that it, it's an evil that infests everything around it how absolutely how can you how why would you create a society where 100 percent of your citizenry lives in some sort of fear it just is it's just amazing well i you know listen uh i must say uh nick that my education has now demonstrated to me that it's about economic as well as racial oppression and actually, the number one issue is economic suppression. No, oh, you're you're right. I mean, for instance, in Tallahassee, in Florida at that time, Tallahassee, has, Florida has a beautiful state capital, neo Greco, uh, neo Roman, I believe. And there's a long broad boulevard that leads up to it. And when I was a kid, you'd go to Tallahassee, and both sides of that boulevard had shanties and lean-tos lining the street. That's mm-hmm. where the colored folk lived. That's where the black population lived leading up to the state capitol. And it was that way in a lot of cities. Yeah. Uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas, as a matter of fact, they have demolished the black neighborhood that used to surround the capitol. Um, mm-hmm. And in many capitals in the South, they've gentrified around the capitol in order to push back mm-hmm. those who were close to the seat of power. And it's in, uh, and I also want to comment too on your reminiscence about sulfur Mm. in the water uh trust me buddy uh (laughs) one of the things that my family taught me is that you never drink sulfur water warm you don't drink it out of the bubbler Mm. you try to drink it cold which is which suppresses uh some of the uh uh, some of the smell but you're absolutely yeah yeah, and you're absolutely right though I I smell that smell, and there are places in the South today mm-hmm. where the groundwater is permeated with sulfur, and like you, it it sparks a trigger that takes me back to those days, mm-hmm. and that's not a good feeling. I got to tell you, it's not a good feeling at all. No, not at all. Uh, but uh, uh, but Rachel, you're you're a more of. Uh, the generation that had no experience with any of this. And then Nick and Chris, uh, well, in particular, Chris, you watch this from across the pond, buddy. So uh, I'd love to hear how how this era was viewed, Rachel and, uh, and Chris. And also add into that, too, if you don't mind, folks, add into that uh, some of the other surrounding characters that I think were very supportive but in some, in one case, uh, sort of the not the opposite, but came across 
as a different kind of civil rights leader, and that's Malcolm X. Brother Malcolm. Yeah, uh, exactly. I always, I always juxtapose. Well, not you know, and juxtapose is not the right word, but I always parallel. I guess is probably a better term. Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and those who claim that Malcolm X was a violent, uh, nope. advocated violent mm-hmm. person are totally mm-hmm. wrong. They don't know Malcolm mm-hmm. X, but he was not one who who talked about turning the other cheek, though. He was a, if you're struck, you defend yourself, while mm-hmm. Dr. King was much more of a turn-the-other-cheek kind of guy. But what was your observation? Well, um, like you were saying, Mike Walker-Jones, I was raised here in Franklin, Massachusetts. In the 1990s, I was in elementary school, and um, the students who were not, didn't look like me, were extremely rare. There were like maybe two in every grade level, or at least that's that was my perception as a as a child. Um, they, they were real tokens, uh, to use that term. And it's my experience has really been more of a scholarly one. Um, I've, I study history. It was my undergraduate major. I've, um, I, I've studied the, the speeches and the writing of Dr. King, um, more in terms of his, his leadership abilities and those kind of things. But my personal experience has been really limited. I remember a time, um, as a middle schooler at Horace Mann, my social studies teacher, we were uh, kind of covering the the history of the United States and slavery and kind of the, the where are we now. And my teacher talked about how with the way population growth was working and with the way statistics were trending, that Caucasian people in the United States were going to actually be the minority at a certain point. And I remember as a student to just put it all out there for you guys, I remember being disturbed by that. I remember being frightened by that. And I I remember uh, being in a denial too, being like, no, no, teacher, you, you can't be right about that. That can't be right. Because my tunnel vision of Franklin was so small, it would be like if, if every single uh, person in Franklin either like died or stopped having children. And I think it, that it did stop me though in the sense that I was like wait that's wrong Rachel you shouldn't be thinking that way and it opened up that journey for me in some way so I thank my teacher for that although it was disturbing to hear and then going to school uh doing college in Boston that was a really helpful experience for me I worked in Roxbury but I went to school at Suffolk which is right uh in the heart of downtown and when I was working down in Roxbury, I'd take I'd take the Route One bus or whatever uh, down into Dudley Square, and you could feel and you could see these these walls that we were talking about just now in the South. Those exist in Boston too. They're extremely strong in Boston. Um, you look at a place like Jamaica Plain, uh, where it really it is one of those. There's two sides of the street, and it. So we have it here in Boston, too. And I know we're going to hopefully bring up the monument that was recently put um, for the kings in downtown. And I tend to think that here in Massachusetts, we think this this city upon a hill is is distant from the south. But we we are in, in many ways. The Boston environment is worse. The statistics of where money is made and where it is not and which doors are open to who and and not. Boston has a long, long way to go. And we like to claim the kings here and embrace them, if you will. But we, I, I'm actually kind of disturbed by the fact that we have done that because what are we actually doing here mm-hmm. in Massachusetts and in Boston? And we like to put these monuments up and it's kind of our, we're patting ourselves on the back and we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to claim, we're claiming Coretta mm-hmm. and Martin. And yeah, they met here in Boston, but uh, but they weren't welcomed into the community necessarily so that's a bit of my perspective thanks uh with regard to you know relation race relations in boston i can remember being still living down in the south in maryland and one of the most stunning and the most impressive head uh front page uh photos i've ever seen in my life was of race riots in boston 
And you have the the picture that comes to mind immediately. The photograph was uh, taken on the uh, the plaza, City Hall Plaza. And you've got a man standing there, a white man. And he's got a flagpole in his hands. And he is aiming that flagpole directly at a black man who's trying to back away. That photo just comes to my mind immediately. And all I can think is Louise Day Hicks and just an amazing array of of names and images. So I thought, and at that time, you're thinking, well, good. Now you know what it's like. Well, if that's I a could white... interject there about yeah, that okay. famous mm-hmm. picture, mm-hmm. that man holding that flag was actually there in support of the black community. He happened to be waving his flag back and forth, and a photographer got the picture that made it look like it was being mm. aimed at a black man. And that is not at all what was really going on in that image. So there we have Uh, percent. Yeah, yep, you're right. But it it told the story that people wanted to believe. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep, exactly. So pictures are worth a thousand words and they can all be rubbish. (laughs) So (laughs) obviously growing up in England, my experience uh, was completely different to anybody else on the panel here. Um, But uh, I'd have to say you know, to be brutally honest, that I don't think American racism came out of thin air. Uh, growing up in England, the uh, racism was probably just as intense, but just wasn't directed physically or violently at people because there wasn't a population to direct it against. But uh, it, it, you know, I'm not trying to joke about this, but growing up in England, you're kind of imbued with the sense that you're better than anyone else in the world just by virtue of being born English. It's just something that happens. And yeah, it seems funny, but it's you, the the net result of it is when Brits have gone abroad in the past, they found colonies and established institutions that discriminate against um, people of color and and even any other foreigners. Uh, so it's you know y- y- you can sense that there still today because um, I can't convey how awful it feels looking back and and the things we're kind of brought up to believe about people of color. So as a small child, I'll tell I'll share one story which is going to make me sound awful, but we um every once a week at, at the elementary school. So I'd probably be like 5 or 6, maybe 7. Um I'm not sure. We would go off to the town swimming pool and you know be taught to swim and you know hopefully improve our safety or whatever. But um there was no people of color at my school. We had one kid who was Greek, had a little wavy hair, and he was beaten up occasionally because he looked a bit different. But going to the swimming pool, there was a kid from another school who was black. And I honestly had that thought, you know, as a five-year-old, if I rub him, is he going to be white underneath? You know, again, it sounds stupid. I don't want to make a joke about it, but I honestly had no conception, no exposure to to people who look different to me and my classmates uh, at school. And then, uh, yeah, the just the history that we were brought up to be proud of, of, of colonial violence. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just incredible. So yeah, don't I think a lot of people, that, I think a lot of people <laughs> found inspiration and some comfort in the words of people like uh, Dr. King and the thought Absolutely. that there could be a better world. Um, what changed me personally was education and travel and just getting to meet and know people of different backgrounds who um, were just as virtuous and had enough character, just as um, good or better than, you know, some white people from home, you know, and then I got to think, well, this is all these ideas I grew up with are just wrong. It's not who you are. It's how you how you are. Well, don't be embarrassed by that, Chris, because uh, I got to tell you, in my lifetime, I have run into a lot of young people who absolutely think because they they have not been taught, they have not been able to mature and read and travel. Uh, but yeah, there are a number of children who think that, oh, well, yeah, you and I are the same because if you scrub that off, you'll look just like me. Um, and believe it or not, that is so pervasive amongst little kids who are not uh, provided with, uh, I think, the, you know, experiences to lead them otherwise. Uh, And not only that, I can't tell you how many times, up to and including as recently as last year, people who want to touch my hair, (laughs) you know, oh, goodness, let me, let me just Mm -hmm. touch your hair there, you know. And there are many of us, especially in my generation, 
who would sometimes fight back with words like, look, I'm not going to be your black experience. Uh, and I remember seeing that in college a lot. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, uh, you know, people would come up and they want to quiz you and ask you questions, not out of any sense of what I would call uh, trying to be disparaging, but just out of total curiosity. And Chris, so, you know, what you sound like is a normal child. Many, many children and stuff believe, oh, yeah, you know, you and I are exactly the same. Now, believe it or not, many of them are coming from that place that, well, we're actually the same. You just happen to have some color on. Well, that's true, but, you know, the <laughs> uh, uh, that color doesn't come off. Uh, All comes down to melatonin. It it's absolutely comes down to melatonin, buddy. And CBS, uh, uh, no, ABC, I think it was, used to do a series back when I was teaching uh, elementary school. So this would have been back in the 70s where they would try to dispel some of these rumors uh, or some of these misconceptions and myths. Uh, and they had a program on the ethnic differences around the world. And believe it or not, I, in my heart of hearts, there are no races. There are no distinguishing uh, species difference between those of us who are human. And, you know, as a matter of fact, I resent at my age now, I absolutely resent when somebody asks me, well, what's your race? Because uh, I immediately want to go human. That's the only one. And yet we will try to, you know, we still permeate this myth out there. And I think Dr. King, again, was trying to fight against this. We permeate this myth that because we may be of different hues, that, that there is something inherently different in us. It is not when I get a liter of blood in terms of whether it's a transfusion or something, I have no idea where their blood came from. And believe me, it could have come from someone who uh, evidenced whiteness, or it could have been a person who was Asian American, or it could have been a Native American. The blood, because it is a genetic consistency of our species, all of us are able to use the same blood. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's it's important for us, I think, especially those of us in the media, to help to suppress, if we can't stop, at least suppress some of these myths. And the other uh, issue is, Mick, <laughs> uh, uh, the, yeah. the image that you were talking about, I remember the one with the flag, and thank you, Rachel, for clarifying mm -hmm. that. But there was another image, though, that I thought parallels between what happened in South Boston and what happened in Little Rock, Arkansas. And it's the folks who were lining up outside of the buses. Children were getting on the buses. And this was not just a picture. It was a video of people yelling and hollering and screaming at those kids. And that immediately triggered the images of Little Rock, Arkansas, where these children were trying to get into the school after they had been integrated. And Dwight Eisenhower had sent in the troops and the people were lined up along the street. And these were elementary school children. These were That's right. babies screaming. Uh, the, the ones babies. in Boston were, no, were the elementary school. But the ones in Little Rock, the images that came yeah. forward were from the high school. Right. But there were children who were, I remember the, the little girl, the little girl clutching her books like this in front of her, hair done in pigtails. Oh, yeah. A little skirt walking in and right behind her are these faces of just intense hatred and an overwhelming sense of evil that just sickens you. It just at a child, a child. Yeah, and, and if our listeners want that, that that photo uh, is called Ruby Bridges. That's her name. That's the little girl mm -hmm. who was trying to walk into the school building. Now, that one was an elementary school. She was trying to walk into the building. And as a matter of fact, that one has been changed, turned into a painting, I also believe. Yes. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, it it's it is. And Rachel, I absolutely love your comment about the fact that. Boston needs to, if not uh, 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 take a look at itself, but also what are they trying to do with the image? Which brings me to that new, uh, that new, I, I will call it what my first visceral reaction was, that monstrosity. I'm not one who happens to like that particular 
that particular sculpture. Some of you may feel differently. And as far away as California, I've been receiving emails and uh, text messages from friends who uh, literally are distressed over it. I'm not sure exactly what the artist was trying to do, uh, but by not having heads and images, just by having arms, and I'm not sure that people realize what he's created there, but it's not, I think, something that ought to be taken in by the city of Boston. I think they ought to replace it. But that's my personal opinion. It hasn't played well on social media at all. No, no social media or the national uh, national media either. Uh, there have been one particular episode of Leslie Jones on a late night show talking about it. Uh, so we won't go into that. But I can't figure out what it is. I've seen images from different perspectives and I still can't I don't know what I'm looking at I can see a hand somewhere but I don't know what the rest of it is I'm sorry it's beyond my uh, my artistic vision I think my my uh, my daughter out in California and her friends have a uh, there's an article that I think describes it and I think it's by uh, one of uh, Coretta Scott King's uh, Scott relatives and uh, he, uh, and I won't mention it on this program, I think we are a little bit family oriented, but uh, uh, but you need to look it up because uh, he is not very, uh, very supportive, nor, uh, I, I mean, talk about disparaging. I mean, he really cuts that thing to pieces uh, and says that it is not something that the Scott family at this point is very enamored or mm. um, admirable about. Well, the only thing I can think of is when the uh, the wall in D.C. was unveiled. That was widely reviled uh, and attacked. And it's now come to be seen as a very strong, strong symbol of yeah. just loss and despair and just uh, something to try and heal. I don't know that that's going to happen with this. So I try not to condemn it. I just say I can't figure out what's happening there. I must admit that the uh, there's the artist who created the wall, and again, our generation, Nick, and the when she made her statement about the wall, uh, the first time I saw it, I went with her thoughts in my head. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the Vietnam Memorial was intended to be a sort of mark in the ground. Uh, it was intended to show, and it's a V, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. It's also a V. And the intent of the monument was so that there are certain directions when you walk up on that monument, you don't see it. You can walk right up to the edge of it. Mm -hmm. and you can't see it. That's intentional. Yeah. You have to go in. It goes, it goes down into the ground because the... Uh, as you go down, you get into the heart of the war, which is where the majority of the names are mm -hmm. as you walk down. And that's intentional. Yep. The black granite is intentional. Mm -hmm. The scar in the ground is intentional. And I think what happened was it was totally misunderstood. And some of the media didn't do their due diligence when they when they were reporting about it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, now the comparison with the embrace in Boston, uh, I, the creator, the artist says that it's just the shoulders of it from a photo of the kings. But in the absence of their heads, in the absence of any kind of reference point, it almost looks as though, uh, and the artist didn't put any reference point on it other than the hands. It looks different from different angles. And in some of the angles, it I got to tell you, it does not represent what I think is the intent. And that is the meeting of the kings uh, here in Boston. So uh, that's all I can speak to. Maybe we ought to call the artist up and see if we can get him on the program. Let him explain himself. No, I'm sorry. I, I think it's a failure of execution. In other words, when you're looking at a small model or when you're looking at an artist's rendering, you see one thing. But then when you see the final 20-foot tall piece unveiled in place at a different scale, suddenly everything changes. This is always an issue with architecture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Rachel, you had a point on this? Yeah, I wanted to uh, bring up what folks are mentioning how this really has gained national and apparently even some international attention. And it's really such a, it's such a shame and it's 
reflecting what we were talking about before, where Boston, it likes to wash its hands of this stuff. We're talking about this monument. Great. Fabulous. But in, but we're talking about aesthetics. We're not mm-hmm. talking about Boston and like, what is this doing here? What neighborhood is it in? Is this a gentrified neighborhood? What it, it's not bringing up the valuable conversations that things like the Vietnam Memorial does bring up where we're, we're stuck talking about this uh, slightly suggestive arm rather than we're talking about why why is it important that we're there and what it does Boston currently look like? We are yet again brushing aside the reality and we've got national attention right now. So now's the time to be talking about it and we're not. Well, that gets us to something we were talking about earlier with respect to systemic racism and inequity. And both in Boston and, in fact, as recently as yesterday, um, redlining was called out in L.A. The bank was fined $2 million, which, given the extent of years and years of redlining, uh, it turns out to be a tiny drop in the bucket, given the financial disadvantage that it put an entire community in. Sorry, so, Pete, I'm an ignorant foreigner here. What's redlining? Redlining is when you choose not to allow mortgages to be written in certain neighborhoods that are predominantly black or predominantly some other ethnic group, a Hispanic, whatever. There are neighborhoods that are marked as being undesirable financially. And they're outlined with a red line. You used to see them in banking quite often. I mean, because that's oh, yeah. that's where the that's where the the block came from was that mortgage lenders and banks. Our, our money does not go here. Right. We're not going to put it in there. It's too risky. It's too dangerous. There's no return. Enough. There's no return for us. And it's every aspect of real estate. It's the mm-hmm. mortgage. It's the insurance. It's the value of the home. It's the steering as it used to be. Well, it's still called steering mm-hmm. uh, where real estate agents would push certain ethnic groups into their respective communities and it's been found out it's been you know there's tried to be uh, there have been legislation put forth at every level from local all the way up to the federal in order to stop the practice but it's still going on and there's a very famous uh, uh, as a matter of fact chris there's a very famous piece that explains it all uh, in all of its uh, what i would call uh, infamous history it's called uh, the Color of Law. And that particular book actually starts back from 1865, because this practice was uh, supported at every single level of government, including the federal government, which supported it, which is part of the underpinning and platform for the argument for reparations, because it was this particular insidious practice that actually helped to build the wealth gap. Because if you in this country don't own a home, you're not part of the real uh, American dream, because that's where wealth, especially between generations, comes from. And again, Dr. King was, uh, I recall the the one march where I was behind him with my great-grandmother was in Louisville, And it was an open housing march, which was based upon that same principle that there were certain not only places in Louisville where we could live, but we were also restricted from certain public housing projects. Now, this is federal money in order to sustain moderate and low income housing. And again, that was segregated and there was redlining around where the blacks could live and you know, you could also take it to the bank that the places where blacks were allowed to live were not as well kept and maintained as those where whites were living in Louisville. So the open housing law, which was established in, I think, 1960, I want to say 1966 in Louisville, there were a number of marches leading up to that. And Dr. King did come and I got to hear him speak and uh, like I said, we were in the crowd behind him uh, in that march in Louisville. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned the 1800s because um, it goes back to something that I uh, learned. Um, the first person place I ever went to in America, believe it or not, was um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, back in the in the uh, early 90s. And uh, 
everyone there was talking about this um, event that had been just exposed. I mean, everybody locally kind of who had been there forever knew about it. But 1921 race riot were the only time that airplanes have been used. to. It was so bad, the, viol- the, the violence against the, the black community in Tulsa, that uh, it's the only time that aircraft have been used to drop bomb or grenades on continental U.S. soil. Uh, where the right, the white mob uh, engaged local farmers to drop the planes, it it was so bad. Like over a thousand people died, and no, it it was inconceivable to me. And so I started digging into this and realized it was kind of the culmination of a pattern of events over the last the previous thirty years. Uh, I think the first one was in the eighteen nineties in Wilmington, North Carolina, but across the South there had been this total transformation. After the Civil War, everyone thinks this Jim Crow erupted after the Civil War. What happened was that there was this flourishing of the African-American economy in the South, what I learned. It was all this was like suppressed from any history book I'd ever read up to that point. And it, it was just it was just eye-opening to learn how successful, how prosperous African-American communities were in you know, particularly urban environments across, and they were deliberately and violently targeted for destruction. And impoverishment by, you know, the white elites galvanizing the white mob to to bring people down. So this idea that, you know, the African-Americans have always lived in poverty, this color of law issue just really struck me. Um, this this history needs to be taught. You know, this is, you know, no, never mind slavery. There's this violent dispossession that took place in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, like just 100 years ago, this was still happening. And it's just astonishing to think, you know, that people grow up thinking, oh, the the, the black side of town's the poor, dangerous one. Well, that's 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 created by the rest yes. of us. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm just sorry, you know, it's just tragic and stupid yeah. and wrong. You know, there's yeah. no question well, it, there. It begs, I'm just it begs, it begs the notion of how do you reconcile Black Wall Street against redlining, mm-hmm. given that a community could grow prosper spontaneously by hard work, knowledge, intelligence, all the things we prize. And that community could not just be self-sustaining, but sustaining in a way that contributes, in fact, to the environs and economic welfare of others around it. And yet it was still deemed necessary to make it go away. So... Yeah. And, 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 and Chris brings up a very great point. I mean, I... There are times when I get so frustrated, you know, because I've got all these useless facts in my head that I can't get out fast enough. Uh, one of them is, uh, for example, the uh, the riot, as it was called in Wilmington, was not a riot. It was a act of terrorism against duly elected officials who were murdered and no one was brought to justice in that particular instance. These are people, blacks and whites, who had been elected to take over the city of Wilmington, North Carolina, and they were murdered before they could take their office. Similar situations happened all across this country. The incident that you're talking about in Tulsa targeted Black Wall Street. These are mm-hmm. folks who were prosperous. And this is in 1921. They were targeted to destroy their community because they were so prosperous. And in 1870, 1870, just five years after the end of the Civil War, Black folks were on a trajectory to become the talented overall now. These are all of the freed slaves. They were on the trajectory to become as a people, one of the fastest advancing uh, classes of folks in the history of this country in just five years. Now, think about that. Why was that? Because the folks who were freed were the artisans. These were the folks who were the carpenters. These were the farmers. These were the ones who were uh, innovative with regard to tools and agriculture and building and sustaining uh, life, whether it was rural or city, and they had to be stopped. The system would not allow it. And this is the history that we want to suppress. The first civil rights laws, which were established right after the Civil War to guarantee voting rights to slaves, 
and to protect them were overturned by the Supreme Court. We had one of the authors, as a matter of fact, who chronicled that, uh, Peter Canellis. That first civil rights law was overturned in the 1870s, which took away rights that had been guaranteed by the Constitution. So the second civil rights law, which was in 1965, was, again, a repeat, let's try it again. And some people simply refer to the civil rights law of 1965 as the first civil rights law. It was not. Those laws had been taken away from people of color in this country. And I guess, you know, one of the things that Martin Luther King Day does for me every year is to remind me how fragile all of this is in this country. Because, Chris, you're absolutely right. It can be taken away. It can be given. It's wrong. And we have to keep trying and moving toward a more perfect union. And the only way to do that is for us to wake up to the fact that our history tells it all, if we know it. And that's what we need to avoid, is the repeating of that history so that we stop making these same mistakes over and over and over again. My last thought is, I was totally gobsmacked by the phrase, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Well, let's pray for that day. And, and may it be soon. That, uh, uh, and it... it it uh, uh, I heard a phrase the other day, uh, Pete, that the Martin Luther King Day should not be viewed as a holiday, a day off. It ought to be viewed as a holler day. We ought to holler at each other and from the mountaintops. There you go. That this day needs to be a day of giving and remembrance and of us continuing to try to move toward a more perfect union. Amen. Amen. Well, another more perfect hour has flown by and we have to say goodbye until next week. If you would like to weigh in on if you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info@franklin.tv. That's i n f o @franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. If you disagree on anything, all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online. Just visit our website, wfpr.fm. For uh, Rachel Plukas, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, uh, Representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, our station manager, Peter Jay, and my co-host, Nick Remesong, I'm Chris Wolf. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey towards, hopefully, a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.